Good evening, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started, so if you wouldn't mind taking your seats. Welcome. My name is Tanya Stern. I am Deputy Director at the Montgomery County Planning Department, and we are very excited to have you here with us this evening. Uh, with the, the second of our series of three events for our 2019 Winter Speaker Series. Our focus uh, for the Speaker Series this year is to look at uh, regional issues that Montgomery County should consider as we will be embarking on our general plan update, which you will hear about very shortly. Just a couple of uh, quick notes. One is that this session will be live streamed. And also, uh, if any of you would like to get LACM or AICP credits, we have a sign-in sheet uh, right out front, uh, so please make sure you sign that. So before our, uh, I introduce our speaker, Harriet Chagoning, I wanted to just give you a quick overview about our general plan and why we're doing an update this year. Actually, let me start with this first image. Uh, this is an image from our 1964 general plan, which is also called the Wedges and Corridor Plan. And this was an image uh, over 50 years ago of what, what planners thought Montgomery County would look like in 2000, which was 19 years ago. Um, but really, the, the, the image is really about a modern and efficient county. And it's also... Um, kind of provides a great visual for our innovative plan, our wedges and corridor plan, which was a major planning document at the time and really created the foundation for a lot of what you see today in Montgomery County. The image on the left is of the, uh, the cover of our 64 general plan, and the image on the right is the region-wide concept of wedges and corridors that was adopted from a 1961 document uh, for the capital region that was prepared by the National Capital Planning Commission. So here you can see the corridors radiating out from Washington, D.C. in the center with wedges of open space and low-density development formed by the corridors. Montgomery County and Prince George's counties are the only jurisdictions that adopted this concept in their general plan. So following the 64 general plan, the county council updated the plan in 1969, and this 69 plan was much more of a policy document compared to the 64 plan, which was much more uh, aspirational and conceptual. Now one thing in particular to note from the 1969 general plan is that it included three key recommendations that have led to three major planning initiatives that are still in effect today. The goal of increasing affordable housing was implemented through the nationally recognized moderately priced dwelling unit program. The goal of protecting farmland and rural open space was addressed through clustering options and the purchase and transfer, the purchase and transfer of, trans, of development rights. And lastly, the balancing of development with the provision of public infrastructure was addressed through the Adequate Public Facilities Ordinance, which is part of the county code today. It's very 
sensitive. All right, so why are we updating the general plan? So again, the last comprehensive plan, uh, update of our general plan was in 1969, which was almost, well, it's basically 50 years ago. And as you all know, since then, Montgomery County has really changed quite significantly from a bedroom community uh, to a major employment center with a diverse population of over a million residents. We're also entering another era of disruptive technologies and cultural shifts. And so this is really now the time to step back and create a new visionary plan for Montgomery County's next 50 years. So in thinking about the future of Montgomery County, there are a lot of changes that are already underway that we are really starting to think about and that we're looking forward to having further conversations with you as we embark on this project. As we all know, the county has been going through a number of demographic shifts. Um, and just one plug for our trends report, which we published uh, just a few weeks ago, that has a lot of data about the county's population, housing, and employment over the last 25 years and what are some major trends from those changes. We all know that the digital transformation is affecting a lot of aspects of our communities. Climate change is obviously a very significant uh, concern, and we're going to be hearing more about that tonight. There's also a growing preference for walkable spaces, um, as well as using or leveraging the, the benefits of the sharing economy and thinking about how that has actually transformed not only the types of jobs that people have, but what types of impacts that has on land use. And also thinking about uh, autonomous vehicles. Oops. So lastly, just wanted to highlight the timeline for this project. We are currently in uh, what we call our pre-planning phase, and we are planning on doing our official launch of the project uh, later this spring, uh, early summer. And then over the rest of this year, we will be embarking on a series of visioning conversations with the community, as well as doing uh, analysis on a number of major issues and trends affecting the county um, into next year. And then we are looking forward to bringing a working draft uh, by next spring, and also having some work sessions with our planning board and in county council with the goal of transmitting the new general plan by July of 2021. So with that, I want to uh, introduce our speaker, Harriet Tregoni, uh, to talk about tonight's topic. What is real resilience? Positioning our communities to thrive in changing times. Harry Trigoni works on planning, smart mobility, disaster resilience, housing, and community development issues. She served in the Obama administration as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Office of Community Planning and Development at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Her work at HUD encompassed helping states, regions, cities, counties, and towns across the country to build a strong foundation for resilience in the face of a changing climate and for a diverse and prosperous economy based on enhancing community quality of place, economic opportunity, fiscal stability, transportation choice, and affordability. Trigoni was previously director of the District of Columbia Office of Planning, where I had the pleasure of working with her at the time, where she worked to make DC a walkable, bikeable, eminently livable, globally competitive, and thriving city. Harry also served as Governor Glenn Dennings, Secretary of Planning of Maryland. She was a Loeb Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, 
She recently prepared an amendment to DC's comprehensive plan on autonomous vehicles and is now working with organizations around the country to help states and localities prepare for a range of future challenges, including smart mobility, climate change, disaster recovery and resilience, housing affordability, and community development. Harriet is currently the, the director of the New Urban Mobility Alliance, an outgrowth of the shared mobility principles for livable cities, which more than 170 companies and governance have signed on to as a guiding vision for more sustainable, inclusive, and prosperous, resilient cities. With that, let's welcome Harriet Trigoni. Good evening, everyone. I'm really happy to be here and happy to see all of you coming out to, uh, uh, to prepare for the, the next general plan that you're going to be doing. I, I definitely think every 50 years, whether you need one or not, you should do another general plan. So I'm glad Montgomery County is, uh, is definitely doing that. Um, how many of you have looked at the trends report that uh, the department put out a couple weeks ago? Um, I thought it was really good and really fascinating. Uh, and I didn't realize so many things had changed in the ways that they had. I'm going to use a couple of the of slides from that presentation, but, but I think most of what I'm going to talk about tonight is change. Um, how many of you love change, really love it? Okay, well, that's more than I ever see in a planning meeting, so uh, more power to you. But change is hard. I mean, hardly anyone loves it for its own sake, right? When something changes, some people get better, uh, off, some people get worse off. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's disruptive by its very nature. But we have a lot of change coming our way. And so more than knowing exactly what's going to happen, I'm not going to tell you that. I don't know that. If I did, I'd be making a lot of money probably, right, uh, betting on those things. But uh, I'm going to instead talk about um, how we, what we need to know to be able to thrive, whatever those futures might be, what things need to be flexible, adaptable, changeable? What things need to be immutable, maybe very little? Um, and that we need to use data and information to know where we are. So that's why I really love seeing that trends report. I think planners more than anybody else have a great job. They get to think all the time about the future. And a lot of us live, swim every day in the tide of change, and we may not even know it. If we're not doing things differently ourselves than we did them five years ago or 10 years ago, we may not particularly notice that a lot of other things are changing. Other people, especially in our region, are up to the minute with every, everything uh, new that they could possibly try. Um, so it's helpful to have uh, information and data to show here are things that are changing, here are some things that are staying the same, and, uh, and here's what we think is coming and how we might prepare for it. So that's my main message for you. Today, let's see if I can do this. Oh, it's going to be like that. All right. I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, you know. So uh, winter is actually already here. But, you know, it's change that's coming. And, and there are things, you know, that we need to be concerned about. Uh, uh, Tanya has already mentioned climate change. I've had a couple of people come up even before we started uh, tonight's presentation and, uh, and express some concerns about that, as we, as we should be. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about climate change, but I'm going to talk mostly about um, all these things that that uh, that that are coming. Uh, I could talk about 
three or four times as many of these things, but, but these are nice big buckets that uh, also to me were reflected a little bit in the trends report that, uh, that, that, the, that the county put out. Um, transportation and mobility. Uh, and I'll talk quite a bit about that. That's a lot of what my new job is. Uh, but what's, what's changing about that? What's different about that? And what, uh, what we might need to prepare for um, when, it, when it comes to those changes? Climate and, and resilience, um, you know, it's not just going to be about uh, how high can we build a wall, right? Um, it's really going to be about the things that, the qualities that make places resilient. Um, you know, one of the things that, that really affects resilience is wealth. You know, it's a lot easier to survive a disaster or catastrophe if you've got a, a fat bank account and a salaried job. It's really a lot harder um, if you're a renter and you're living paycheck to paycheck. Um, you know, so, so uh, reducing those disparities would help make the county more resilient. Another thing that helps with resilience is, is having a lot of connections to other people, right? Um, you know, in, you know, through organizations like churches or civic associations or clubs um, or other things, but having those connections, right? Um, you know, they have a whole phenomenon. My mother is Japanese, and I follow a lot of the demographic changes in Japan uh, where they're so far at the extreme in terms of a very low birth rate and a very elderly population. Um, and they have this phenomenon now where people uh, pass away, and it, it's days, weeks, months sometimes before people know because so many of the uh, parts of Japan, not the big cities, but have, have become depopulated. And there, aren't, there just aren't people around there. So having those connections and those networks as we get older is particularly important. Um, and uh, the economy is changing, like almost before our eyes. Uh, and, and what kinds of jobs the economy is producing is very different than when the last general plan went into effect, right? Um, in some ways, Montgomery County is, is changing along with that economy. More knowledge economy workers, more very highly degreed people in the county. But that's not everybody. And when you used to be able to get a good paying job and support a family um, without a college degree, you know, sometimes without a high school diploma, those opportunities are increasingly rare. Um, and they're, they're, they're not secure. When you can find a job like that, it's often very insecure. So those kinds of, uh, of circumstances are going to lead to increasing disparities um, in, in our region. Um, so let's start with transportation and, uh, and talk a little bit about this. So what's interesting to me about transportation um, is that it's how very ripe for disruption it's been for a while, okay? It's, it's a really strange system that we have in the U.S. If you travel other places, um, other countries do not rely as much as we do on private ownership of automobiles. Like, we have essentially privatized much of our transportation. And in America, um, automobile owners, right, um, they, they drive their, the automobiles they own 5% of the time. They park them 95% of the time. If any of you are business owners and that was your asset utilization, you'd be like, why do I own this asset? It's, it's depreciating every day. Uh, oh, my goodness, right? It's having an effect on other things. Uh, do you know that the, that the largest category of uh, consumer uh, of, of debt in this country, of individually held debt, 
is uh, student loans, okay? Uh, credit cards are behind student loans. So mortgages are still bigger. That's a bigger category. But that student loan debt is really crushing. And tons of college students coming out of school with debt are making choices about where to live based on how quickly they can pay off their loans and the place that they get. So I find it almost a badge of honor in D.C. that we have the highest college indebtedness of any city in America. But that's because people can live in D.C. and in parts of our region without an automobile. And that means that the knowledge economy is, is saying, I'm going to go to where those workers are. So it's enormously diversified the economy in the district and in our region. But those are the kinds of things that are going to be increasingly important in the future. Um, let me talk about another thing. So, so a lot of you have seen some of these new entrants. Everyone's taken a Lyft or Uber, right? Raise your hand if you have. Okay. I mean, the first time my mother-in-law took one, I had to call it for her, and I had to put the app on her phone. Um, but, you know, it's, it's been a real boon for her. She has a car, but she doesn't like driving at night. So now she can, you know, call an Uber when that's the case, right? And it's, and it's made a big difference about what she's willing to do in the evening. Um, Another weird thing about our right for disruption transportation system is that we tend to swat a fly with a bazooka, right? Almost half the trips, all of all trips taken in the United States are three miles or less. The commute trips are often longer, but we take on average um, uh, 11 car trips, 11 trips per household per day, 11 total trips. And only, only, you know, 13% of those are commute trips. Everything else is for your other daily needs, right? So we take a ton of trips. 75% um, of those trips that are three miles or less are taken by automobile, right? A lot of those trips could be taken so many other ways. Three miles might be a bit long to walk, but guess what? Trips that are a mile or less, 60% of those trips are still taken by car, right? So this kind of shows... Right? What might be another option, depending on the, on the length of the trip? And what's so interesting is that those TNC companies that we looked at earlier, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the others, right? They're, they're not seeing themselves anymore just as providing a particular product or service. They are increasingly wanting to own a piece of the transportation ecosystem because they know that most of us don't do any one thing. All of us are pedestrian sometime or another, right? Um, you know, many of us uh, take every single mode that's available at some time or another. I bike, I bus, I train, I walk, right? I drive, I take Uber. Um, I take Lyft better than Uber, but yes. You know, I do all of these things, and, and I want to have services that are as seamless as possible so I can match my preferences, safety, cost, speed, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, to my needs at the time, and, and having more choices is a wonderful thing. So Uber has bought um, a company called Jump. Anyone seen these red electric bikes around town? Thrilling to ride. Thrilling. I mean, I would pay much more than $2 a ride to ride those bikes. They're so fun. They go really fast. And, yeah, you can be as dressed up as you want. It can be a hot day, and it's just kind of breezy to be on, on the Jump bike. It's really wonderful. Um, Lyft bought Motivate. They own most of the bike share systems in the, in the U.S. Um, so do, do, you, do you see what they're thinking about? One of the things that uh, motivated 
Uber is that they found out that the Uber trips that people were taking in, in, in several cities were exactly the same length as the jump trips people were taking. And what's cheaper for them to have? A car and a driver or a jump bike? So they, they're like, let's, let's use price and other things to send signals to people about what might be better for them to take, and let's own more of this transportation ecosystem. And if you don't know all of these things, I don't blame you. It's changing so fast. Don't look at all the tiny writing, but if you can see the, the shape of the curb. Do you remember when car sharing was a new thing? People, when car sharing came, you know, to, to the... Uh, to Montgomery County, and it took a long time for it to ramp up, and you know, we were up in arms in D.C. about what should we let them park on the streets for free or what should the story be. You know, bike sharing had a, had a much quicker uptake, Uber and Lyft very fast, e-scooter growth, oh my God. I mean, some of those companies on that other page are now long gone, so they're not just coming fast. In some cases, they're going fast, uh, you know, because their, mo their financial model didn't work. But basically, you're going to see a lot of entrance into this mobility space because the basic thing that we have is really ripe for it. It's not a great value proposition, and you don't have to be a millennial to know that. Although, you know, thank thankfully, baby boomers and millennials are so unnaturally close. You know, admit it. Admit it. You're close. You, you millennials are close to your parents. You boomers. You live and die by what your kids say about what's cool, what to do, blah, blah, blah. So it's really changing how quickly some of these technologies are being adopted, which is a very cool thing. But, but millennials, I give a lot of credit to for pointing out, hey, this private car ownership as a prerequisite to entering the economy, that sucks. We don't want that. We want to have some better way to do this. So... It's not just that things are happening quickly. It's also that some of these impacts are going to be really far-reaching. Um, you know, I don't want to tell you, like, how, how much revenue the district gets from, like, speed cameras, but it's a lot. It's, uh, you know, it's more than, you know, seven figures, maybe eight figures. It's a lot. Um, and... It, you know, in a future where we would have autonomous vehicles that were connected to each other, you know, there wouldn't be speeding, there wouldn't be red light running, right? There wouldn't be any, there'd be a lot more safety. We tolerate 40,000 traffic deaths a year in this country without blinking an eye. Um, but it also means revenue. That revenue goes away. Parking revenue. Imagine that the autonomous vehicles of the future are electric, pennies an hour to operate. Why would you pay even a dollar to park if the vehicle could just circle, right? So no parking revenue, but boy, maybe terrible congestion, you know? So these are the kinds of implications people need to be thinking about. Um, you know, jobs. One of the largest categories of male employment in the United States is driving and delivery, right? It's not just men, but a lot of men are employed in this, and you know, there's a future where there's much less of that employment. And where are the jobs coming from that are going to replace those jobs? Entirely unclear, right? So these are things that are knowable. It is possible to plan for them. You know, in communities in our region, you know, we've said, you know, we've, we've kind of blithely automated for decades. We're, we, we automated things instead of having people, right? A lot of metro systems have ticket takers to check on tickets, just as an example, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, so many tasks that used to have people to do them were automated. 
But in the same way that a lot of our jurisdictions decided that a minimum wage needed to be higher, right, it, it was because we were finding out that we were continuing to have to support people who had full-time jobs uh, but very low wages with, with housing supports, with health care supports, with other things. We had to subsidize their livings and, and not even give them the dignity, right, of independence when they worked full-time. That's because those profits were leaving, um, you know, the region and going to, into the, the uh, shareholders' pockets somewhere else, right? So this is a, maybe a similar question to be asking ourselves. You know, might we rather toggle toward more employment in some cases and less automation if it means people could be working and employed and have that security? Um, because it might also mean we don't have to pay other supports for them. And that's not a calculus we're, we're used to doing, but it might be something that we have to think about in the future because, you know, it is possible that everything that, that's wrong with our society, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's employment, whether it's fairness, whether it's uh, access to the economy through transportation, you know, whether it's uh, climate change, you know, uh, whether it's the cost of living, all of those things could be better in the future, but they could also be much worse, right? And basically, the free market is not going to deliver the better outcomes on their own. It's not going to be just that, that operation of profit-making companies delivering us the better future. We're going to have to actually articulate what we want in terms of values in our community, and then we're going to have to set the rules so that, so that we get those things. And the stakes are high, you know? The stakes are very high. Um, I'm going to say something else about this. So we're going to have to know almost on a continuous basis. We've, we've established our values. We've said this is the future we want. We have to keep asking ourselves, are we getting there? Are we getting closer to that future or further away from it? And that means we have to benchmark ourselves. Because let's be honest, and I'll talk about this a, a couple of different times, we're in a competition. We're in a fight. Every jurisdiction is competing for resources, for people to choose to be in our jurisdiction, for businesses and industries to invest in our region, for, for home, for property owners to choose to buy, you know, in our, in our communities. And other people are competing fiercely for that, too. We have to give them a better proposition, right? And, and, and Montgomery County has an, a, an international reputation for doing that. Some of the things that Tanya talked about, um, you know, those were some of the first things I ever knew about planning, Right. Um, but you can't rest on your laurels. You have great, a great tradition of being progressive and, to, and being pioneers and leaders. Well, boy, do we need that now. We really need that now going forward because, um, you know, we are in this competition. And, you know, um, D.C. and Montgomery County, we're close. We're tight. We, we do a lot of things together, but maybe we also compete a little bit. So I just thought I'd put this up here. This is a, a, a little um, uh, fact sheet looking at housing and transportation costs for two jurisdictions, Montgomery County and the District of Columbia. Okay? Um, so the county's vast. You have ag preserves. You have, you have all these, this wonderful green space. And, and D.C. is a city. It's an entirely urban area. It, may have been more, it might have been more fair to look at Bethesda, right? But for the, for the sake of argument, right, we each have our citizens, our voters, um, based on our land use patterns, 
based on a lot of other things, uh, characteristics about our population and our land use, there are some really big differences in how our two jurisdictions perform. Uh, for example, it, it, you, it, you can barely read it, but the 61% is location-efficient places, you know, places that are walkable. Think of it as a high-walk score, right? 61% uh, of the places in Montgomery County are location-efficient, and they say 100% are location-efficient in D.C., where there are choices, and you can walk to meet a lot of your destinations. All right, well, who cares about that? Well, you might care um, because of what it costs you. So your transportation costs are higher in Montgomery County because of it, $13,000 a year on average. In the district, it's $8,700 a year. So, you know, but you'd say, hey, housing is more expensive in the district. What about that? Well, if you put the housing and transportation costs together, um, they, they're, they're still quite a difference. In Montgomery County, that's 44% of average household income is housing and transportation. In the district, it's only 32% of average household income. That means in the district, you have 68% of your income left to spend on other things. In Montgomery County, it's only 56%. So those are big differences, right? That explains right there, maybe for a college graduate, where they'd want to go. Because they, they need those transportation costs to be lower because they've got to pay off their college debt. But I'm just saying benchmarking. That's a, that's a useful thing to do uh, with, your, with the places that you're competing with. And to think about benchmarking the things you care about. Affordability is one of them. Maybe you don't care so much about transportation costs, but that is a useful thing, absolutely, to think about. Another favorite stat for me is car-free households, right? Because for me, that implies a lot of other things. Census gets this data from the American Community Survey. You can get it every year, right? It's a bit of a running average, but it still tells you something. It's a bit of a proxy for land use and walkability, but it also suggests affordability, right? If that number's going up, and the, and the rate of vehicle ownership is going up, that's a negative, right? Sorry, the other way around. If the car-free households are going up, that's good. But if the vehicle ownership is also going up, that's bad. So those, both of those statistics are reported. And for our country as a whole, both of those things are getting worse. And the places where they're getting better are honestly doing better competitively. You know, they're attracting more of the knowledge economy workers. But, you know, that's something that you can, you can get every year. All right, so enough about transportation. There's a lot to pay attention uh, to there. And one of, the, one of the things that's important to know is that in the urbanized area, we devote 30%, 25 to 30% of the land to cars, to car parking. Okay, that's, let's call that car storage, because remember, they're parked most of the time, and to streets. So a lot of the streets are publicly owned, right? So... That's land that either could be on the tax rolls or be doing something like providing housing or managing stormwater. Um, so we've given over a lot. We have seven to nine parking spaces for every car in America. We've given a lot to that private automobility. And if we end up with a future where some of that changes, that means we can maybe get some of that space back for other purposes. Um, people like to say they're not inventing more land, but this is a case where you might be inventing more land. Uh, that you can use for something else. And I'll tell you about what you could use it for in a minute. Climate change and resilience. All right, talk about something heading toward you like a freight train. Um, this is, you know, I hear this everywhere, right? I, this is one of my focuses when I was at HUD. Um, I had no idea, you know, that HUD was responsible for long-term disaster recovery. Um, and, and, 
And I heard this every place during the years I was at HUD, you know, this is the worst ever. This is the worst ever. They would say it every year. But the bottom line is, it's the worst ever so far because it's going to get worse, right? And unfortunately, we don't seem to be doing much as a nation to really stop these changes. Um, a lot of what we've done since the last general plan, uh, if you look across the entire country, has really exacerbated the risk. It's not just that the sea level is rising and rain, uh, extreme weather events are getting more frequent. It's that we have very assiduously moved to the riskiest places that we could possibly live, right? Waterfront places, coastal places. You know, uh, we've doubled the housing units between 1960 and 2008 on the coast, right? Um, and the value of that property uh, for now is high. Uh, it's six times the density of inland communities. So we've kind of deliberately put ourselves in this position. And we're really seeing the impacts of it uh, with unbelievable losses in terms of property uh, and the, the value of the disaster mitigation that uh, the federal government is having to, uh, to pay for. Um, and it's not just um, sea level rise and flooding. It's, it's extreme heat. Do you know that that's the biggest killer? That's the biggest risk and the, and the most frequent thing. We talked about isolation, not having a, a dense network of connections. I mean, a lot of very young and very old people end up dying uh, when there's extreme heat. There was a horrible uh, uh, episode in Chicago, you know, where, uh, you know, uh, un un hundreds of people were, were killed uh, because they just weren't prepared. You know, that is a place that wasn't used to heat waves. Uh, and there are a lot of other places in our country where uh, it's not customary to have air conditioning. And the places that people have moved to because it's so nice and warm in the winter I mean, Arizona can be 120 degrees in the summer now, right? Um, think about things like, like uh, public works. When could you do any work in the summer in Arizona? You know, at night? Uh, maybe not at all, right? So it, those kinds of things are also going to be happening. Because the temperature is rising, the ability of the atmosphere to hold water is increasing. So even in places that are, are experiencing more drought, when they get rain, they get a deluge of rain. They get an incredible amount of rain. And we've had many of those uh, experiences last year, wettest year on record, right? I mean, what gives? Um, so these things are happening. You may not be living in a coastal community, but that heavy rain, you know, we have rivers, we have lakes, we have, we have water, right? And we're not used to, uh, uh, to so much rainfall. And so much of the land that we do have in parts of our region uh, is fill. You know, it's in land that was swampy, right? We're in the uh, Chesapeake Bay estuary, right? All of this was, uh, was kind of swampy, right? So that ability to hold water is, 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 really, is really limited. So I'm not going to scare you with numbers. I'm just going to say to you, you need to know certain things. And I don't actually know this about Montgomery County, but I've done a lot of work with other places about knowing the risk. How many of you rely on FEMA flood maps to, to know what your, what your uh, risk of flooding is? 
How many of you even know what a FEMA flood map is? Okay, so, so FEMA flood maps, I love FEMA, I worked a lot with FEMA. So the flood maps are a look in the rearview mirror, a total look in the rearview mirror. Um, they don't consider sea level rise and they don't model storm surge, right? So I did some work in Texas I, you know, where I met so many people in Houston who lived one block from the mapped FEMA floodplain, right? And they were like, thank God I didn't have to get flood insurance. It's flat as a pancake, and those FEMA flood maps were drawn 30 years ago in some of these neighborhoods before there was any development whatsoever, before everything had been paved over so the water had nowhere to go. So the flooding was catastrophic, and 80% of the damaged housing was outside the map FEMA floodplain. So I'm telling you, buy flood insurance. I, I don't make any money from this, but I just bought a policy myself. I live in Columbia Heights. I live at the top of the hill. But I still get really heavy rain, right? Things could back up. And you, your normal policy doesn't cover this. So buy flood insurance. But the, the bigger thing is know your risk. No one is mapping and modeling. No one should be paying attention. Uh, no, one, no one should be relying on FEMA for information about risk. D.C. is even saying, oh, we're going to use the 500-year flood map. No. It's still not with sea level rise. It's still not modeling storm surge that we could be getting. You know, we're coastal. So, yes, um, know the risk. Share the knowledge about the risk. Because right now, um, most people have no idea what their risk is of flooding. And that is the most prominent, you know, that's, that's where most damage comes from for, for many of this stuff. And the other thing I would say is the things that make you vulnerable are not necessarily where you are in the floodplain. There are also these other things, you know. Are you job insecure? Are you, are, do you, are, you, are you in a place where you have no transportation choices, right? The most vulnerable, um, where's the cheapest land in the county, right? The cheapest land is, is in the land that other people don't want, sometimes because it floods a lot, right? Even at HUD, a lot of our housing that, that existed pre the formation of HUD, right, was not on great land. So those assets were really vulnerable. But if I were to ask anybody living in a subsidized housing unit who I was going to put out of that unit because it wasn't safe for me to re-up the contract, they would say, please don't do that. I don't, I'd rather have a one in two risk, a 50% chance of flooding next year, right, than, than, I, than I would have a 100% chance of being homeless this year. So like... Look at the vulnerable, look at where that housing is, um, and think about, you know, where it, where it needs to be and what opportunities you might have to replace it because that is going to be a problem. A lot of the housing stock that we have, our communities have grown up around that housing stock, um, even it, though it might be in a vulnerable location, and we don't have large swaths of land just open to shift it into. So that's going to require really a lot of work and a lot of thoughtfulness. Um, if you do get a disaster, and I hope you don't, uh, remember when that happens that, that you need to do more than fix what was there. What was shocking to me at HUD is that most of the billions and billions of dollars that HUD had spent was to lovingly replace things exactly as they were, exactly where they were, right? That's the impulse. 
People want to return to normalcy. That is the impulse. You have to fight that impulse, and you have to ask yourself, you know, my visionary 2021 general plan has me going in this direction. If I have a catastrophe, how can I use the money associated with that to propel me in that direction? I don't want to return to what was here before, as, as lovely as it might, might have been. I need to prepare for that future. So think about what those aspirations are and, and how you're going to achieve them. And I, I would also just say, when it comes to this kind of resilience, um, no one, no one, there's, not a, there's not a clear and, and definitive answer about what to do. And planners kind of like that. The construction community kind of likes that. We've always built to kind of a fixed endpoint. Imagine if you have to say, um, this area is going to be lovely for the next 30 years. And then it's not. It's not going to be habitable after that. And it's not worth it to try to make it habitable. Because the wall that I raise to protect it makes the flooding worse for the people that are outside the wall. Right? So maybe I need to learn that it's a bit of a moving target. Um, you know? And that maybe you're not going to pass your home to your children or your grandchildren. Uh, but maybe you'll figure out some other way to leave them a legacy. That's not how we're used to thinking about it. But that's our future. Um, that's our future even if we did something today to stop our, our emissions, right, which we don't seem to be doing. So from a planning perspective, design for adaptation, right, design to change. And, and, and if you have to take down that housing that's now vulnerable, you know, maybe what you put that land use to could make a lovely open space amenity that would actually provide more protection for the housing behind it, right, so that instead of it lasting, for, for 20 years, it might last for 50 years before you'd have to change that again. But that's, our, that's the future that we're in. Not used, that's not how we're used to thinking about it, but that's what we have to think about. Uh, I'm going to give you an example. When I said no one is really looking at their real risk, um, it's not exactly true. The state of Louisiana is looking at their real risk, and I've been doing some work in Boston, uh, something called Climate Ready Boston, and we did some work in the South Seaport. Um, this is a... a uh, this is the current and, and uh, historic shoreline, and that, uh, that kind of grayed-out area, right, is, uh, is, the, is, the, is where the FEMA flood map is, right? Um, when we modeled the probable storm events, it turns out that other places are much more vulnerable to the storm surge, and because parts of that South Boston area are, are actually topographically higher and somewhat protected, that with just one key intervention in the channel, all of that land, which is where some of the poorest people in the area live, is protected. But all of this is, is underwater. Um, so, and again, they have a 2030 number, a 2070 number, and they, I think they'll be walking away after 2070 from the South Seaport. Can you imagine? So... I'm just saying that uh, we're having conversations now about what to do between now and 2030. Because if you're in real estate, you know, discounted cash flow means after seven years, it doesn't matter. Like their, their balance sheet, how they make investment decisions, to say that it's good to 2070 might be saying it's good forever, right? For, for the purposes of their calculations. So, so they, and that might work for cities too, right? that we're going to put infrastructure in, we're going to collect taxes, we're going to have activity, and then we're going to retreat from this 
you know, and we're going to invest somewhere else. And how we do it might be different, uh, but but this this is our future because we can't afford to protect this in perpetuity with sea level rise, with storm surge. Um, so to give you a, another sense, like I put you are here. This is through the end of the century in terms of storm intensity, population, sea level rise. It's getting worse. It's going to get a lot worse. Um, and most of, for most things, our lives aren't going to be hugely different. It's going to be hotter and stickier in the summer. Uh, we may not see much snow in the winters going forward. This is going to be habitable here. All of that's true. For the vulnerable, it's going to be very rough. And for some, for some of our favorite attractions, our waterfront things, we're going to have to think about those things differently. And the good news is that there will always be a waterfront. It just may not be where it is right now. And it's not just that you need to know as planners and the planning department. It's that right now almost nobody is getting a signal about their risk. No property owner is getting a signal about their risk. Uh, the flood insurance program, FEMA's flood insurance program, it's not market-based. And when Congress tried to, to actually assess kind of a, a risk-adjusted premium, uh, members of Congress went, uh, other members of Congress went nuts for their constituents in risky areas, right? So right now, most state insurance commissions require that we dumb it down. They average the uh, premiums across the whole state. So the low-risk places subsidize the high-risk places, just like historically the low-mileage drivers subsidize the high-mileage drivers in an insurance pool for car insurance. So that means that people aren't getting that signal. Uh, home builders... Um, are not, you can't rely on them to build in a place that's not going to flood. I mean, they call their own industry blow and go. They have no long-term, you know, uh, that's just their business model. I'm not even saying that pejoratively, but they don't, they don't have a financial interest after they've sold the homes in their subdivision, right? So there's, you know, they're going to be bankrupt in 10 years if they can't sell all those homes or, or less. They certainly don't care what happens in 30 years. They're, they're buying the cheap land. That's when they can have the biggest margin. So I'm saying people need to be informed about their risk. Um, the, the bond ratings are going to change in counties, in cities. They're starting to change now. Uh, bond rating agencies are starting to ask places like Miami and New Orleans, so what are you doing, right? It's not quantitative yet what they're doing. They haven't declined to issue a 30-year bond to a place. But it's true for mortgage lending, too. There are some places I wouldn't buy anything on the ground in Miami, right? And they're already actually seeing in South Florida a decline in property values. Um, you know, uh, maybe not in Miami Beach, but in other of the coastal communities there. What, what's fueling Miami's uh, uh, economy is money fleeing Venezuela, and fleeing other economies where the inflation risk is so great that to stash it even for five years would be a great thing, right? So that shouldn't give people confidence that, that climate change isn't something to worry about because it really is. And what the Congress is starting to see is that our flood insurance program is so broken that we are paying those very same people over and over and over again in the same places. And so for the first time ever, in January of 2018, the Congress appropriated money to HUD to do hazard mitigation to prevent the future disaster, not just recover from the last one. 
And it was a lot of money. They allocated $15 billion, but only to go to maybe a dozen places uh, that had been hard hit over the last three years. You know, but, but it's, it's something. It's a start. The rules aren't yet out on how that money's to be spent. Um, but, but, you know, some places, I think Puerto, Puerto Rico got $8 billion of that money, right? So there's a lot of money to do something different because what we're doing now at every level is just not working. And it's, it's uh, places like Houston have engineered their way out of their problems for a number of years. That's not going to work for anybody. Same in Louisiana. You know, we'll just uh, build a bigger levy. No. In Miami, there's no solution, right? Because the, the subsurface is karst, is limestone, porous. It's like a, you know, the water raises outside, the water raises inside. So endangering the Everglades, right? Inundating them with, with salt water. So we, the, the best thing anybody could do is to not allow buildings to go in the wrong places. So you have to know your risk to know what the wrong places are, right? And, and you need to inform people who are getting building permits, um, or, or even before that, buying land, what that risk is. Because there's nothing we can do that's better than preventing that building from happening in the wrong place. Okay. Um, I'm going to say a little bit more. This is, I did some work. Uh, I was on a task force for the governor of the Virgin Islands after, uh, uh, after Irma and Maria. Um, and he wanted to have a resilient recovery. So we did a bunch of workshops uh, on the three islands in the Virgin Islands. And I've done this workshop many times in many places, and it's always, uh, it's always interesting to me but shocking to the participants. Uh, we have them go through an exercise where they look at consequence and frequency of events, and we ask them to consider their shocks and their stresses. So shocks might be a hurricane, right? Uh, gosh, it might be a, a financial collapse, a global recession. That's a shock. Uh, a stress is chronic poverty. A stress is uh, unemployment or underemployment. You know, a stress might be, uh, might be civil unrest or disease, right? A lack of clean water. So when people end up analyzing the high-consequence, high-frequency things, there are almost always those chronic things. So it says a lot about if you're going to be making investments in resilience, what should you actually be paying for? You should be trying to change some of those underlying conditions that make it so stressful and so difficult to, to live every day, but also to, to uh, recover, to be resilient in the face of a, of a disaster. Um, so as you go through your own planning process, you know, it might be useful to have a facilitated discussion about those things, to prioritize those stresses and those shocks that people think are going to happen, and then figure out, you know, what a common set of values might be around the resilience of Montgomery County and, and how. Because a lot of times it's not just the what, it's the how you do something that gives you a more resilient outcome, right? Who you engage, how broadly you engage. And one of the things that we found was by taking those shocks and stresses and converting them into values, they could actually inform a lot of things that people were doing. Plans, investments, uh, you know, in, in disaster recovery, but, but business investments. Investments in infrastructure that they might make out of their capital plan, right? Because we, as a, as a country, as a county, right, as a, you know, as a people, we used to have enough money that we could afford to... Uh, to, to pay for one thing at a time. 
have a single purpose civil, civil works project, a single purpose entity, and, and get a pay a dollar, get a dollar's worth of value. We can't afford to do that now. We really can't. And so much of what we could be building, uh, what we could be doing could serve multiple purposes. We need to get four or five or ten dollars out of every dollar of expenditure, and a lot of that is changing the how of what we do, right? I would start mining your capital budget and getting your agencies together, and if they share some of these values, they might be able to work together on projects where the combined cost of, of, doing, of doing something uh, is actually less when they work together than if they work separately. That's what we find in almost every case. So it's not just the what, it's the how. Um, and I will just say, and this is another example from the Virgin Islands, that, that if their values were investing in people, reducing risk, increasing their own competitiveness, right, because it's expensive to live there, everything is imported, especially energy, and their electric grid was really unreliable, um, that if those are your values, the things that you end up investing in are actually quite a bit different than if you had a different set of values. You focus more on using the money that comes in to do recovery to actually train uh, the local workforce. You don't want contractors doing work, even if it takes longer to recover. You want your people doing that work, and you want to be able to transition them you know, into maintaining that infrastructure that's been built, right? Why would you... Why, you know, why would you suffer high rates of unemployment uh, when you have all these, this funding come in? If you're Puerto Rico, $8 billion, you better have full employment after that or, and programs to do it. So I'm just saying that, that having these things to guide what you do could make a difference in how you do things. And I know, uh, you know there's been uh, some talk of, uh, you know, maybe it's too soon, but some talk of uh, capital budgets and uh, a reduction in, in fees. Look, uh, Winston Churchill is the one who said it, right? Uh, gentlemen, we're out of funds. Now we have to think. That was in World War II. That's where you are, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, and we're not recovering from disasters, right? We're using any money that comes in to, to win the economy, right? Maybe not. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Physical planning, investment. We're going to win the economy. We're in competition with others. If we spend our money better, smarter, thinking about the future, we're going to win. Okay, so um, just to give you a quick example of uh, some other work that we did at HUD that's relevant, um, this is an example of a post-Sandy Manhattan, okay? Um, and what you, know, what you would do... Right? If you had a storm surge and a hurricane, isn't it obvious that you would build a seawall? Right? That's, that's engineering you know, 101. And in fact, there were seawall plans in New York that were decades old, just like there are public works plans in Montgomery County, especially transportation plans that are decades old. And if someone put money on the stump, somebody would surely drag out one of those old plans and say, great, we can finally fund this without ever having looked at how well does that 40-year-old plan meet our current needs, much less our future needs? So no 40-year-old plans, no 20-year-old plans. I guarantee you something that you planned 10 years ago didn't look at climate change, okay? So you have to relook at all of those things. And yes, you could build the equivalent of a seawall, but why would you do that if you could instead have a series of waterfront parks that have a different character in every neighborhood 
right, that also provide the same level of protection as a seawall, you know? So that gets multiple benefits. On a day when there's not a storm surge, it's not a hideous eyesore. It makes the community more beautiful, um, and people use it, you know, all the time. So that, that's the kind of thing that we're looking to try to do. And I would, I would further say that, that on all of these things, whether it's transportation, whether it's resilience, um, there's, not, there's not a silver bullet. You know, I'm not here to tell you this is what to do. Here's the answer. Do the answer. No. It's, you're going to have to do what you did, you know, with your last general plan. You're going to have to, you're going to have to innovate. Oh, gosh. I don't know what happened there. Something bad. Um, so uh, you're going to have to, you're going to have to innovate. And innovating actually means um, to being tolerant of failure. Believe me, if you never fail here, then you're not trying to actually do anything different. I know governments hate to fail. You hate to be on the front page of the post with something that you did. I always hated that. But, you know, um, sorry. You have to do it. And in some cases, it's really a badge of honor, right? But you're not going to get to new and innovative solutions without some tolerance. And a lot of you smart folks in the planning department know how to do this. You, you help manage people's expectations, right? I mean, we talk about our wonderful bike share program. We never talk about that clunker. That thing, you know, that bike share program was the worst. It was, it was called Smart Bike. It was 100 bikes. We made some poor advertising company pay us in bike share services rather than money. They wanted to advertise on our bus stops, and we said, sure, give us bike share services. They said, what? What's a bike share? We're like, you figure it out, deliver the services, and this is what we got. And it wasn't... It wasn't great. And Pepco wasn't helpful. It was 100 bikes, 10 stations. It wasn't regional. <sighs> Terrible. But, you know, capital bike share, awesome. And everything that we learned about capital bike share, um, I mean, about that we hated about a smart bike, we fixed in capital bike share. And it was terrific. It was regional. It was, it was solar powered. It was big. You know, it, the bikes were much more sturdy. And we got a company who knew what bike sharing was to run it which was really good. Here's, a, here's another example. We striped bike lanes on, on, on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, which if we'd followed the normal process, would have been like 15 layers of review with the Fine Arts Commission and the NCPC, you know, and lots of other people. Um, but we said, you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to do something just temporary, just temporary. We're going to get out some paint. And we're going to paint some bike lanes. And then we're going to take feedback, right? So, so we, we restriped this five times in like three months. And when the screaming got to a dull roar, people, the different factions, the bikers, the pedestrians, the motorists, uh, the D.C. residents, the commuters, when they were about screaming at the same level, we said, ah, done. <laughs> so it's, it's still that way right now, right? And, and so temporary pilot, those are magic words, but it also helps to manage people's expectations that, oh, we are going to change it. We're just doing this to get your feedback, yeah? And for many things, you can absolutely do that, and, and you have to. And like I say, failing is a badge of honor because it shows that you're innovating, and that is, uh, that's a marketable thing uh, for the kind of uh, thing that you want to attract. So bike share, uh, you know, it became the model. It was the largest in, in, in North America. 
uh, for several years, and it did what we also collectively wanted it to do. It encouraged all kinds of other places all across the country to adopt bike share programs. So this is the toughest thing that's coming your way. Uh, and I mentioned it earlier with the economy, and that's that um, things are changing in the county. Um, it looks like your, medium, your median growth is stagnant income growth, but it's not. Um, the, uh, the wealthy are getting wealthier, and the non-wealthy are getting uh, uh, more non-wealthy. Um, and this is uh, the district uh, by, uh, by household income, and you can sort of see, uh, this is 2000 to 2014, that orange spike at the top, at the far right, that's uh, households over 150,000 of, of income. So we're attracting those knowledge economy workers of every age, and, and they're getting paid more money, and it's changing, um, the, it's changing a lot about the housing stock, about the types of restaurants that open, but the disparities are, are uh, jarring, uh, and they're jarring in a lot of neighborhoods. Um, another thing that's true in D.C. is that poverty is really concentrated. One of the things I was responsible uh, for was, the, uh, was, was fair housing, right, and that we had several racial and ethnically uh, uh, significant concentrations of poverty in the district. I mean, enough that in, a, uh, in, in another uh, administration uh, in another year would have probably resulted in some very serious sanctions because almost all of the poverty is concentrated to the east uh, and nothing is happening on the west, right? And, and, and the city's own reports to HUD for the last 10 years have said the very same thing but not a lot of action about it, right? Uh, and, and it's not so much that uh, that we don't like concentration. We don't like what concentrated poverty does to school performance, what it does to access to opportunity, right? You know, you might think of the American dream, many people do, as the single-family detached house with the picket fence. But honestly, for most people, it's that this is the land of opportunity, mobility, economic mobility. You can, you know, I'm a first-generation American. You know, many people in this room probably are. Montgomery County does wonderful, uh, uh, does wonderfully well in attracting, right, uh, immigrants. I think that's, for, for, for 30 years, uh, communities in the U.S. were growing mostly through net foreign immigration. And a, a lot of places, my hometown of St. Louis, uh, Baltimore, were terrible at attracting immigrants, and their populations have just really cratered. Um, but... Opportunity. They come for opportunity. Our parents came for opportunity. And for, for, for generations, they had that opportunity. The next generation did better than the, than, the, than the previous one, but that's not the case. You know, we, our economy has concentrated so much of the nation's GDP in just a few places where no housing is being produced or not enough housing is being produced that you can no longer move to those opportunities and get a foothold and then be able to better your economic circumstances. You know, that, so, so that's why at a micro level and at a macro level, we need to do things to deconcentrate poverty and spread that opportunity around. And it's not just housing, but it's also access. Our other investments mirror this. I mentioned the car being, uh, for many people, the, the ticket, uh, the price of, the, uh, of entry into the economy. If you don't have a car, you can't get to a job in many parts of our region, right? Um, this shows that, you know, the, the longest commutes are in that same eastern part of the region. And, and it, you know, one of the things that's most important to understand is access. 
And, and if I were to look for a single measure of equity, for me, that would be the measure. Equity of access, you know, proximity to jobs, how long does it take to get there, and is, that, is the cost of that transportation, uh, is it affordable for the people who I'm trying to serve? Here, um, I mentioned that your incomes are, 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 uh, are stagnant but, but, but growing, but here you see that the light yellow places are where uh, poverty is increasing, where incomes are declining. The darker the areas are where incomes are growing. Um, you know, it's, uh, you, have, you, have some, you have some very wealthy places cheek by jowl with some, uh, some not very wealthy places. And in the district, one of the things we've experienced when we have what looks almost like economic integration of a neighborhood is that uh, without more help, uh, from, uh, from third parties, there's not much actual mixing of people, right? People stick to their own tribe, and it's never been easier to look at your phone and never have any interaction with someone who isn't exactly like you. So another thing to think about is what are the ways in which we can increase the casual interaction of the people living in our neighborhoods, you know? What can we do that bring people together? Um, and how can we think about doing that on an ongoing basis? Planning and implementation of plans in particular, you know, those are great ways to bring people together to talk about the future. But I think that's something that government doesn't always do well, but it's hugely important. Um, I just want to say something about um, our last real disaster in our region, which was the Great Recession. And I just want to point out how differently jurisdictions in our region fared. So look at Montgomery County, which is the red line. Um, you know, it didn't have the highest uh, priced median housing, but it was fourth, I would say, uh, in, in 2007. Fourth highest, and it, you know, everyone had that big, that big bump up. Um, in, in 2016, it's now fifth, but most importantly is that overall, it hadn't regained uh, the pre-recession housing values, right? So some of the other jurisdictions, not really Fairfax, but I would put Arlington, Alexandria, the district, were places that, uh, that experienced the recession very differently. Um, I was planning director in D.C. at the time, and I actually got really scared because I saw hundreds of cars begin to drop off the DMV rolls in 2008, and I was like, oh, my God, people are fleeing the jurisdiction. This is terrible. But it turns out they were dialing down their transportation costs because they could. So two-car households were becoming one-car households. One-car households were, were temporarily becoming zero-car households. We had very little bankruptcy or foreclosure. And while our property values dipped, they didn't plummet. And they really rebounded very quickly. And we gained on, the, on our regional share of both population and jobs post-recession, right? So that, having that flexibility, that, what, that ended up being resilience for us. Transportation choice was resilience, um, and, it, and it had a huge impact. And it also changed, I can say this from the COGS perspective, kind of what other jurisdictions started to look for in terms of what investments they were going to make in the future. Because in the same jobs and housing market where there was a lot of stimulus, our jurisdictions fared so very differently, right? So what were those differences, and how can we make sure that we, we invest in the things that were good for those, for those uh, shocks, and we, we move away from the things that, that continued to hurt us. 
Um, I'm also going to just show you commuting by locality, even though these are really hard to see. I'm, 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 I'm just going to point out, look at the worked at home, uh, look, at, look at public transit, look at walked, that's 1990. In 2000, work at home is bigger for everybody. Public transit is much bigger for some places and not so much for others. Walking is much bigger for some. I'm just saying that, that you know, that drive alone is, is going to be disrupted. And if you've invested in any way in that scenario, the, the transition is going to be rough, right? So parking standards, investing in structured parking without thinking about what it could be when we're not, when we don't have so many cars. Because the predictions are if we go to shared mobility, that we're going to, some predictions are we're going to have 90% fewer vehicles, which is crazy, but at least 50%, right? So that's a lot of parking spaces that we're not going to need. So those are some things to think about. But also, these are movable, right? We can do things to get more walking. Um, you know, what, what the current economy means is that every residential neighborhood now has a, like an office building's worth of workers in it every day because people work from home. Some part of the time they work from home. Those people would support amenities in those neighborhoods, right, if the zoning allowed it. Um, so let me talk a little bit about, uh, I'm going to talk about zoning for a second, and just say every city, every jurisdiction in America, the largest single category of residential zoned housing is single family. And it's also the least mutable. You saw from the report how much demographics have changed. I think almost 40% uh, of, of the county now, county residents are one or two person households, and that's going to get even more the case, right, as people live longer and age, right? Um, and, and that housing stock is not necessarily so easy to age in place in, and it's not easy to accommodate the changing demographics. And what you're doing for your residents is maybe sticking them with an asset that they counted on being able to sell, but maybe the market for it isn't going to be there. So what can you do to, to make that stock more mutable, right? Um, one of the things we did in D.C. was when we updated our zoning code for the first time in 50 years was allow accessory dwelling units in almost every residential zone by right. Uh, it was kind of easy for us in some ways because we distracted people with our parking regulations, but it was also easy because we have a type of ADU that's ubiquitous in D.C., especially on Capitol Hill. That's the English basement. And that's actually flat zoning in D.C. It's not even technically an ADU. We've always allowed it by right. Those row houses ha could always uh, have two units, right? Uh, but people were familiar, right, with that notion that you'd have somebody else living in your otherwise single-family dwelling. Uh, but now you can ha have it be attached, detached, uh, semi-detached. Uh, uh, and like I say, in almost every zone. And that means a lot of different things. It means... Uh, Invisible density and invisible affordability in neighborhoods that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, that have, have changed. Almost every neighborhood is less dense. Uh, I, I shouldn't say that about Montgomery County. Some neighborhoods are definitely less dense, but because you have so many immigrants, your average uh, household size is going up. Um, in the district, it's absolutely not the case, still kind of going down. And we had almost half as many, again, people living in every single house throughout the district in 1950 than we did in, in 2010. Um, and that means less, fewer customers for transit, fewer customers for retail. 
And because that stock isn't very easy to change, you know, there's nothing that, there's not much we could have done to increase that density, or as I say, restore the density, right, that had been there when those neighborhoods were built. So it's a, it's a great thing to think about. I'm looking at Hans because I know he has a bill uh, that would make it easier to have those units in the district. I'm also part of a national coalition that's working to help make this happen across the country because it makes so much sense for so many reasons. Um, that affordability, even without an affordable restriction, which I wouldn't put on it, um, it still is naturally much more affordable in every neighborhood where that accessory unit is because it's smaller. Right? So you have that natural affordability, uh, that income diversity that's so hard to otherwise get, that security to retire, you know, and know that you have another source of income and you actually have another person on your property who could maybe help with some of your needs as you age. Uh, or forget aging, how about those pesky teenagers who are going to come back from college and want to live with you? Wouldn't it be better if they had their own place, you know, out and back? So for time of... For time of life, um, you know, it's, it, it makes a ton of sense. A lot of the people who are building ADUs in the district that I've talked to are, are people who are moving out of their main house into an ADA-accessible new unit, and they're going to travel half the year, and they're going to rent their main house and have that income to travel on. So they're very excited about it. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great opportunity, something perfect to think about as you look at the future uh, and a lot of places are getting into it. California uh, is having a huge boom, in part because the state preempted localities who had overly strict requirements, none of it by right, uh, in the state. Um, so we're talking about where people are going to want to live. Are we educating the workforce of tomorrow? Um, because as, as you probably uh, uh, have heard, right, in many ways, this is my favorite quote, my favorite author, uh, uh, that the future is really already here. It's just not evenly distributed. So we have a little pocket, we have pockets of it everywhere. Thank you very much for your time. I'd be happy to take questions. Anyone want to moderate the questions? You want to do it, Tanya? Okay. So we have a couple of mics uh, going around the room. Um, I'll start with you, sir. Carrie. We see climate change occurring. We now saw in the last two weeks that the Navy Yard has proposed putting a 14-foot flood wall by the Navy Yard in downtown Washington. Most of Washington south of Pennsylvania Avenue or a little further north within 50 years will be underwater most of the time. That means we have no more rail service. No one's going to want to go into the district. Most of the government agencies are going to have to relocate either probably to Montgomery County Prince George's County or Fairfax County, because most of Alexandria and Arlington will be underwater also. Are we planning for this or just assuming that it's not going to happen? You know, I can't really speak to what uh, D.C. Is, is doing now. They have a chief resilience officer who used to work for me, so I call him every once in a while and yell at him about what I think he should be doing. But um, I, I think they are planning for this. I've always said that the monuments would be lovely by gondola, you know, which could be an attraction. If you've been to Venice, you know, it's quite a nice way to see things. And a lot of the buildings are actually elevated. I'm only being a little facetious. I'm just saying part of adaptation might be thinking about how we access things differently. In Miami, they're actually talking about, even as the sea rises, that they're going to have high-rise retirement communities accessible by boat. 
and by helicopter, and they're going to be just fine, right, for that particular special purpose, right? But, um, yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of those kinds of changes. Some of it for a number of decades is going to mean uh, putting the, uh, you know, putting utilities somewhere high where things can't get flooded, right? I think it was 2006 we had that kind of catastrophic flood on the mall, uh, which was a swamp. Not surprising that it's flooding. Um, but, uh, you know, there are things that people can do in the interim that, that would allow uh, lower flo floors to get wet. You know, that's totally possible and, and still have most of the time. Sea level rise is kind of a different thing, right? That's an, that's an everyday occurrence. But a lot of the flooding is, is uh, weather-related, episodic flooding that can be accommodated by, by certain adaptations. But, yeah, I think in a lot of places we're going to have to uh, move the coast back and move the buildings back that are around it. It might mean accommodating those uses at a different density. You know, it might mean swapping some things that are now parkland for something else and instead accepting new parkland along the new waterfront. You know, there, there are lots of those kinds of trade-offs that we're going to have to think about, and it would be better to do them now, um, you know, rather than wait uh, for those, those eventualities to happen. Hello. Um, I was at a planning conference last September, and I was interested to have a presentation from the AARP, who it turns out have been studying ADUs for more than a decade. But it was my experience in 15 years of planning that some of the greatest opposition was from people who may well be AARP members. So AARP have not been advocating for these. And looking around this room, I'll include myself and say there's a fair number of us who could qualify as AARP members. And I think if we could get these kind of organizations Behind it, they have significant um, lobbying ability. They're just not using it. And it's how to kind of unlock that for these purposes, which one arm of them knows is valuable. I couldn't agree with you more. I've been to a convening recently uh, that AARP is doing, and they're also uh, uh, revamping uh, some regulatory guidelines to help people adopt ADUs much more quickly, uh, the regulations themselves. Um, so at least part of, uh, of AARP is interested in doing it. But I, I do think that, uh, you know, there's nothing that kind of beats on the ground local organization, you know, to help um, talk about the benefits, the multiple benefits of having more of that kind of housing choice. So... Uh, yeah, I think I think your point's a good one. I'll share it with them. Take a question from the back. Hi. Um, I'd like to know a little bit about how you work with other competing agencies like um, to get what you want. So, for instance, um, like um, I've seen a couple of projects come in where some developers are really progressive and they're going to lower the amount of parking spaces that they're going to have parking surfaces, and then other developers want to maximize it, and so then you have to kind of negotiate with the developer and try to reason and say, you know, you don't need so many parking spaces, or for instance, when roads come about, you know, we're putting in more roads and now widening of 495, and it doesn't make sense when you look at the future when, you know, people were saying you're projecting that there's going to be fewer cars, so like we're building, we're 
kind of contradicting ourselves, and I'm just wondering how do you how do you work with those contradictions? I, I think it it starts uh, trying to find a shared a shared value or set of values that you have with someone. Uh, you might end up disagreeing on approaches or tactics, but if you both believe um, that the government maybe shouldn't waste its resources, right? If you both believe that uh, you'd like the developer's uh, project to be successful, right? That, that, and, and why, that, why that is and how that could be, um, you know, sometimes uh, people don't believe what you're saying, right? They don't think you're correct. Um, so a lot of times for developers, if their development was phased, I would make them uh, I, I would basically require them to monitor their parking utilization. We had developers come into the city who couldn't tell me data that was in the American Community Survey. What was the household rate of car ownership in the neighborhood where they were putting a development? And oh, really, they were going to double that rate of household car ownership with their single development? I don't think so. So, so why would they have? Why did they have such a, a high parking number? They could never. They could never tell me. And not a single developer I ever had come in knew what the household rate of car ownership was, right? So I would basically say, let's see how many people park. Let's, you build the parking you want to build for your first phase, and then you eat that parking uh, for your second phase, even though it's not going to be very convenient for that second phase of development. If you don't get the utilization that you say you're going to get, you know, that you don't get any more parking. So in some cases, they would just, do the lower parking. In other cases, they would, they, would, they would take the other route. They would build all the parking, and then they'd get nothing in the second round because it never was the case that more people parked you know, than, than they thought. And in fact, we could have probably been even more aggressive. But, but you know, I, don't, I don't think it's unfair to ask people to, you know, to be shown. And sometimes there is a solution. You know, one case might be don't build the parking permanently because our own development community in the region has done some analysis. You know, the higher the walk score, the lower the rate of parking utilization. Walk score is low in a big development before things get going, and it gets higher. But you've built that asset that you can't unbuild, right? So why don't you say meet half the parking requirement with something you build and find the rest of it in other places, right? Because up those other buildings often have parking vacancies. The problem is it's not the, it's not the building manager's primary business. He's leasing apartments or offices. He's not leasing parking. Parking is just an amenity for the main purpose. So he doesn't pay any attention to that or, or have any knowledge. So this is another place where uh, technology and the ability to do a transaction electronically could be magical because we have too much parking. Um, the other, th what was your other question? It was about these roads. They're expanding. Oh yeah. Roads. So, so I'll, I'll say just something really quick about roads. That that do we believe in economics? Do we believe in supply and demand? Yes or no? Yes. We don't apply it to roads, right? Instead of dollars, right, on the supply and demand curve, right? We use time. Time is the substitute for dollars, and, and, the, and, and so we modulate how, long, how far away we're willing to live based on the time we'd spend commuting, right? And, and that number ends up being pretty constant, right? And the thing about building new roads is that it makes it 
faster to drive temporarily, which makes more people get in a car and drive or move to a place where they always have to be in a car because at least for, you know, a, sh a hot minute, it's actually faster to do this thing, but then the road fills up again, you know? It's, it's, uh, we're not charging people. We're not, we're not using those rules of economics to figure this problem out. And so, yeah, it's one of the stupidest things we do in America, and there's a lot of competition for that prize. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Um, Hi. Um, I know you can't cover everything in terms of disruption. I did. Didn't you cover everything? <laughs> but food is an area that clearly is going to be experiencing. We're going to see rising costs. We're going to see also there was just recently a study that came out um, that was looking at the California food system and how it's, how it's projected to be disrupted and California produces two-thirds of our fruits and nuts um, and a, a substantial part of our vegetables. Um, so we're going to feel those effects. How do you address that from the standpoint of making us more resilient? So it's interesting. I, I, maybe I'm lazy. I don't know. I, I often look for, you know, no pun intended, the low-hanging fruit. Um, so one of the things that's, that's, that's broken in America is food waste. We have enormous amounts of food waste. Um, and, and without having to grow any more food, we could be doing a much better job. I have a CSA um, that's called Hungry Harvest. Do you guys know it? Don't you love getting, I mean, it's both really cheap, uh, and you get bizarre things. Not, they're not necessarily local. Like I got a pineapple like this big, and I got a squash that was like this big. Uh, so it's stuff that they don't feel like they can sell. Sometimes it does come from farmers. Maybe an apple is discolored or it's misshapen or two carrots are stuck together and they can't, they can't sell that. Um, and that would be food waste normally. So this is a company that's been created to take things out of the supply and find a market for them, right, so that, uh, so that you know, that food doesn't get thrown directly away. So that's not the total answer to your question, but I think that we could be doing things a lot smarter with how we distribute food and, and, and how much of it we actually use and how it gets to people who might need it. Uh, but in terms of the, of the changes in California, I mean, the, for better or worse, um, there are other parts of the country that are going to have more of a California-like climate. Places further north in North America are going to be able to have a very long growing season that don't that don't now. So I think, you know, whether you're a, whether you're a wine grower or you're a, you know you're a farmer, uh, whether you're a fisherman, because those uh, the 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 fisheries are changing because of water temperature and what kinds of fish can be there. Everything is changing about your business and where you're you're going to be able to do it. For for a county like Montgomery, it's also what trees can thrive with huge amounts of rain, higher heat, right? And, you know, we're in a different climate zone than we used to be, right? A different plant zone. So I, I don't have a, a complete answer to you, but I'm just saying that if the message out of this conversation is be prepared, look at what's changing, react to what's changing, don't just keep doing what you were doing, I think that applies to food and what we grow and where uh, as much as to anything else. Thank you all so much. Let's give a big hand to Harriet for that wonderful presentation.
So we really appreciate you all coming out uh, to join us for this really great thought-provoking thought conversation. On your way out, if you have not already done so, there is a poster right by the door. If you'd like to fill out a post-it and share with us the types of issues and opportunities that we should be looking at as part of the general plan update, we invite you to do so on your way out. And with that, good night.